as we return again to this great book of Philippians, last time we were in uh, verses 12 to 16 of chapter 3 in Philippians, and uh, all of this such an outstanding text as we've discussed, arguably the best church in the New Testament that Paul is here writing to. And as we saw last time in verses 12 to 16, Paul gave us an indication of this great resolve that he had and that he was hoping to instill upon the church. It was a resolve to never stop laying hold of the gospel in verse 12. He, he says that, that he hasn't obtained it, that he's not perfect, but that he presses on to lay hold of that for which he was laid hold of by Christ. And what a great encouragement and strength it is to understand that we must never stop laying hold of that call upon our lives of the gospel of Christ. And then in verses 13 to 14, he showed us, showed us this resolve to never stop pressing forward to the call of Christ. That is, that he as yet had not fully understood, nor laid hold of that for which he was laid hold of, in verse 12, but he forgets what lies behind and reaches forward. And that's us. Because we are so quickly burdened by the elements of our past and the recollection of all of the failures that we have that it can hinder us from moving ahead and recognizing that we cannot look back. We can't look back on our past failures and we certainly have no ability or no worth in looking back on our past successes. For how did they come to us? They were not ours. It was Christ who was achieving it through us. So we have nothing to boast in in that as well. And 1 Corinthians 4 gives us abundant evidence of that. So we don't look back, but we press ahead. And we have that resolve to never stop pressing forward. And then he concluded with a resolve to never stop living right towards the perfection that he has shown to us. That we need to have an understanding of that attitude that God has placed in us, that maturity that he has placed in us. And as a result of that, we need to keep pressing forward. So as he brought to us that, that great understanding of the resolve to, to be strong and that incredible instruction to never stop, the apostle now takes us to an even stronger teaching on what that resolve is to look like. He's given us that amazing section, and now he's going to move us yet ahead and take us deeper still into an understanding of that. That as we consider the element of direction that we're directed towards, we're brought to answer the question of our title. And I've titled our message for tonight, Where Are You Going? Where are you going? As we think about that, our first point begins to explain this to us by showing us what I've titled in our first point as right walking. Right walking. And we see that in verse 17 where it says, and let me just go ahead, I just want to read the, uh, this whole section for you and then we'll dive back into it. Verse 17, beginning there, it says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, 
that are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So again, as we consider this question of where are you going, we understand that the first component in answering that is by the path of right walking in verse 17. And as he uses the words in verse 17, example and pattern, he is referring to what he has just discussed back in verses 15 and 16. This is the pattern that he's already disclosed to us. Back in verses 15 and 16, the focus was on the attainment of spiritual maturity. The perfection that one has in Christ. When we speak of that perfection, when we speak of maturity, we understand that there is a picture of the justification and the positional sanctification by which at salvation we are seen as holy, where we are seen as righteous, where at the moment of salvation, in the great exchange, as theologians term it, Christ takes our sin upon himself, that once for all act at the cross of Calvary, and we receive the perfect righteousness of the white robes of Christ. And that are at that point seen before his Father and ours as holy. Although yet that has not attained to full completion. So there is a picture of maturity that's pointed towards. And now Paul is addressing this extremely mature church. The best church he ever writes about in the New Testament. And he points them to recognize where they are in their walk with the Lord. This is such a critical message for us. I sit here with you tonight as, as some of the most mature, some of the most committed members of our church. So we too have to recognize that he is calling us to understand the maturity that we have. And that is the picture that he's painting for us in verse 15. That this is the attitude we're to have. And if for any reason we have a different attitude, God is going to change that as he first affirms our understanding of where we are and our maturity. It's not of us. Any maturity that I have is not anything I've done. It's what God has done in and through me. So it is that picture that I'm looking at. And in verse 16, we're to maintain that level of spirituality. Wherever you are, you've got to continue to maintain it. Okay, if you've got a vehicle, Averill's got that 2002 Ford F-150 back in California. And it's always something, right? I mean, now the radiator's leaking, and so he's driving around with, you know, three, four gallons worth of water so that as the water's pouring out, he can keep pouring water in. You know, you got to be changing the oil. It, you, nothing works unless you maintain it. We don't work unless we maintain ourselves, right? We have to continue to feed our bodies, and we have to feed our bodies properly. If we have a steady diet of Big Macs and fries and Cokes, that might be really yummy, but it is not going to go well for the maintenance program. Pretty soon, we're going to have some serious issues that result from that. 
And so also here, he's telling us in our spiritual walk, we have to maintain it. Because what's the other possibility? We start to slide back, don't we? If we don't keep ourselves in the body of Christ, if we don't keep ourselves in the word, if we don't keep ourselves in prayer, well, it's very easy to just start slipping back. You know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, well, I used to read the Bible all the time. Yeah, I used to pray quite a bit. I used to go to church. In fact, I was really faithful in going to church. Every time the doors were open, I was there. Now I'm, I'm usually there, well, at least a couple Sundays a month. I never miss Christmas and Easter, though. Yeah. How many people do we know like that? A lot. And this is the exhortation. Maintain your spiritual perfection that God has worked in you. And keep an eye on that. And that's what he says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who are walking according to the pattern you have in us. He tells us to join in following my example. Now, you all know that I'm dyed-in-the-wool New American Standard Bible guy. There shouldn't be any other translations because it's the best one out there. However, there are times, very, very few, where we see some of the other translations or the New American Standard isn't as directly connected to the power of the Greek text, and this is one of them. This is one of them. Because the literal Greek here is a command, and it is very few words, and it would basically say, become imitators of me. Paul is very succinct in this first. He gives us a command right out of the chute. You become imitators of me. Now that's a powerful admonition. He's just talked about spiritual maturity and hanging on to that which God has placed in us, the perfection that he has shown us. And now he says, you become imitators of me. Literally become fellow imitators of me. Paul's commanding us to imitate him. Now this is not the first time we see this. One of the most powerful sections of scripture where Paul gives us the full picture of submission with regards to every stage in our lives, from that of marriage to that of our fathers, begins in 1 Corinthians 11.1 with Paul saying, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And then he goes on to explain the relationship and the subservience that is to go on between the wife to the husband, the husband and wife to the Lord, and even the Lord to the Father. So here now, he begins that section in this by telling us to be imitators of him. It's not the only place that we see that, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1 Corinthians, nor also here in, First Thess or in Philippians, but also in 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with joy, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So even in tribulation, even in difficulty and suffering, they were imitators of the missionaries because they understood something about the faith. They understood there was something there that was completely different than the world and completely unavailable in the world. We know that as well, don't we? Have we not seen that? Have we not experienced that? Is that not our testimony? 
There's things in me that were never here before. There is a joy, there is a peace, there is a zeal, there is a delight. Oh yeah, I may have had some temporary joy. I may have enjoyed going out with friends and having some drinks. That was about as shallow as anything possibly could be. And probably if you look at your life, there is nothing behind you, no matter how great it was, that compares with this joy. Because this is the pattern of spiritual maturity that we are to be following. And he tells us that we are to be following him in this first powerful command to become fellow imitators of me. Imitators, but also those who are partners with him. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that the point of discipleship? Why do we talk about discipleship so often? Because as we come alongside of others and others come alongside of us, it becomes a walking hand in hand. It becomes someone with me on this path, helping me to understand what my life is to look like. The perfect picture, of course, is from Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus tells us to yoke with him because his load is easy and his burden is light. And we need one another in this life to walk through this. And so he says, become fellow imitators of me. And then he gives a second command in the second half of verse 17 as he shows us more about what right walking looks like. And he says there, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Yes, imitate me, but also see others who are doing the same thing. It's not just Paul that's to be copied, but others also are to be copied. So do as both of these do. Look around you. Look around you in the church today. Look around you in the universal church in our world today. Look around you historically. We live in an amazing time, beloved. We have record of men throughout history who have walked in in, as fellow imitators of Paul, who are wonderful examples of us. Boy, be reading their biographies. Be looking at these giants of the faith and understand what was going on in their lives. I've mentioned before men like Hudson Taylor and the blessing of his little coffee table book, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secrets. And, and it goes on and on. Men like John Owen, John Calvin, and, his book, and the recently released book, Company of Preachers. Um, some tremendous pieces that give us encouragement. John MacArthur's uh, fairly newly released um, autobiography, or biography that uh, Ian Murray wrote. Um, sorry, a little fade there. <laughs> a little disconnect. Um, but just some great books that help us see these others, and that's what he's talking about. He's talking about observing those who walk according to the pattern that they have in us, that they have in the missionaries, that they have through Christ, because Paul is telling them, follow me as I follow Christ. It's what it's all about. None of us are trying to find a new road. None of us are trying to pave a new path, because if we are, then we're simply coming up with another version of the broad way, right? Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few there are that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there are on that path. Well, I could pave new paths all day long on that, and we see it all around us. 
if we're not living in that day and age where we see this completely, what I believe and as of yet to have read anywhere else in the, the history of our world, that we have seen this proclivity towards sex change and gender modification. Remember the scripture teaches us that when we see the fulfillment of the wickedness and darkness such as in the days of Noah, that we can expect more quickly the return of Christ. Homosexuality has gone on and we have seen that. There's nothing new under the sun. The, the errant and abusive fashions of man with man have been warned about in Romans all the way back to Leviticus. There's nothing new there. But we don't see this. And, and it makes me wonder, are we not closer? Are we not beginning to exceed the days of Noah in the wickedness of our world? And so, all the, all the while, we have the pattern that we're to follow. That one Christ set that Paul followed, that we seek to follow here, and that's the goal. This is right walking. This is how we have to live. And that is a critical component for us to understand. As we go from right walking in our first point, our second point beginning in verse 18 is wrong walking. If the first was right, this is definitely wrong beginning in verse 18 where it says, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's language here is emphatic and it is emotional. The original says, For many walk, who many times I was telling you. It's extremely emphatic. The word many is repeated twice to, to express how many times Paul told them about these that were out there. And not only if the word many was enough, but when he speaks about his talking to them about it in verse 18, the New American Standard says, I often told you. It's an imperfect verb. It says, I was telling you. That means I was telling you and I was telling you and I was telling you. It's an ongoing past action. Over and over again, I pointed out to you that there were these who were not of us. There were many who were astray in their actions and in their lives. Incredible for us to understand this. Now, we don't see exactly what this warning was in Philippians. Paul doesn't record it to, for us here. But many of us know exactly where he's speaking about because he gave essentially a universal warning in his circular letter to the Ephesians and particularly in Acts 20, his admonition to the Ephesian elders. That text which becomes the groundbreaking text that reveals to us the authority within the church that the Holy Spirit gave to elders. But as Paul writes to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 17, confirming that he is writing and speaking with the elders... And in verse 25 of Acts 20, it says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, now that they'll never see him, he brings this powerful message. Therefore, I testify you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And then this, in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here the authority is specifically given by the Spirit of God to the elders of the church. And in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. We've spoken about the horror of the way that a wolf pack tears through and kills an entire herd, hamstringing each of its victims and leaving them to die. And then in verse 30, as he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Here's our warning. Paul is talking about many, many times I was telling you and telling you and telling you that there was this danger that was imminent, that these were coming. And again, he reflects upon it. And not only is it emphatic, but it is emotional. He tells them it weeping, exactly as he did back in Acts 20 and 31 where he says therefore be on alert remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears with tears as he thought about these wolves rising amongst this beloved flock whom he would poured his heart into these wolves who would come through their brethren that they had acknowledged as those whom they would love and they would simply hamstring them and leave them for dead amongst the faithful. And it broke Paul's heart. And as he writes about it here, he says that he does so telling you weeping about it. Weeping because these indeed are those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Men who are outward and overt enemies because they are walking among men as the beginning of of the verse says. So these are not those that are outside. These are the same ones inside. And they're inside the church faking their faith and living lives contrary to Christ. John MacArthur even notes that many of these have attained to position of leadership in the way in which they are moving through the church. Then verse 19 further describes these enemies of the cross and their wrong walking, where it says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things, of whom their end is destruction. The word end is the same word that means perfection, that it is completion, it is the final destination. And for these, the final destination is eternal damnation. It is separation from Christ. It is the place that Mark talks about in Mark chapters 9, 44 and 46 and 48 as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in the place of eternal hell. Sorry for the interlude. I thought we'd fix that. Goodness. Didn't mean for that kind of highlight. Um, 
but nonetheless, we understand what he's talking about here with regards to that end, which is destruction. Their end in which they will literally be removed. They're described as having their appetite as their God. If you don't spend time reading the Proverbs on a frequent basis, you need to. And if we went back to Proverbs chapter 23, we would see this same exhortation by Solomon, where he writes in verses 1 through 3 of uh, Proverbs 23, When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and listen to this, and put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is deceptive food. These have made their gods, literally their stomach in the Greek text. They're all about the pleasures of the food of this earth and whatever they can glean from it. They're worshiping the earthly pleasures and particularly those of food. He goes on to say their glory is their shame. What does that mean? They glory in their shame? Isn't that what he's talking about? As we consider the detestable, immoral, and horrific elements that are going on in their lives, these they glory about. Oh men, have we not grown up in a world where we have seen this amongst our brothers? Uh, I will never forget the amount of depravity working in the construction industry for 20 plus years. And the, and the, the, the horrific details of, of men who were married and with children and you would hear about them gloating and boasting about their affairs. They glory in their shame. What a despicable condition. And it is rampant in our world and I have no misunderstandings that in the 20 some years or however many it's been since I've been out of the construction business that things have gotten any better. And they set their mind on earthly things. Well, is that not what the Scripture repeatedly talks to us about? In a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll get to the text in James chapter 4 and verse 4, where James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God who set their mind on earthly things. What did John tell us in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15? That powerful text that reminds us that we are not to love the world nor the things of the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are in the world, beloved, but we must not be of this world. If there are things that are in our lives that are reflective of those things of the world, we must stop and take serious stock of where we are regarding those. Because they can be deadly. Well, we're going to see in just a minute where we are to have our focus. But we've seen right walking and wrong walking. And our third point as we conclude is the reward of walking. The reward of walking. Look at verse 20 if, with me if you would. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know, I'll never forget the blessings of preaching through the the book of Colossians. And in looking at Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is where we must be. This is who we must be. We are those who are focused on heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That word citizenship refers to a place where our names are kept in a, in a ledger, in a journal. As a city would keep our names on a tax roll. And I suspect that probably the U.S. government didn't forget anyone yesterday. Um, as much of a blessing as we might think it was. But this is a place where our names are known eternally in heaven on this, liter- on this register. Literally where you are known And again, that place is in heaven where God in Christ dwell. Colossians telling us this. Also, John 14 in verses 2 and 3. Do you remember what the Lord said? Jesus told us there in that wonderful text that in his Father's house are many rooms. And that he goes to prepare a place for us. Is that not a beautiful picture? I can't wait to see my room. I'm pretty pumped about that. I've always loved having the privilege of having a room. I was the oldest boy, and we moved into a new house in in Dillon, Montana. And I I got the master bedroom suite because it was downstairs apart from the other three bathrooms. And no way were my parents gonna cut loose my other two brothers by themselves. And I walk in, and I'll never forget it. I walked into this room, and it had this emerald green shag carpet. And I was like, dude, this is it. This is the most happening room ever on the planet. Guess what? Our rooms are going to be so much better. And this is our picture. This is our focus. Luke 20, Luke 10 and 20. Remember after the Lord sent out the 70 to do the mission? And they come back and they are fired up. Lord, did we not see Satan falling from heaven? We did some great stuff. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's our rejoicing. It'd be great. If we had the gift of healing, which no one does, or the gift of tongues, or any of these others, miracles. But even they would totally pale alongside of having our name written in heaven. This is the glory. This is the joy. Our citizenship is in heaven. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that this is our inheritance. Go read 1 Peter 1. Those first six verses, man, if they don't light you up, then as it's been often said, your wood is just wet. This is great stuff. Hebrews 12, 23 tells us that this is where the church is in heaven. I love being with y'all in church. It, it, It is the highlight of my life. Obviously, it's what I do. But it's not just what I do, it's what I love. 
I wish we could have church every day. I can't wait to be in heaven where we'll have church every day. I can't wait to be with those, those models I've looked at throughout my life. The, the Earl Buells and the others and, and just to hold them again and to thank them and, and then all of the others. What will it be like to understand what Paul went through? And as amazing as that will be, how amazing to stand before Jesus. You know, I, I'm not big on supporting movies. Um, in fact, it's dangerous to ever talk about movies from the pulpit. But um, if you have the inkling to go and see the new release of um, I Can Only Imagine, it'll bless you. It'll bless you. I Can Only Imagine. So it's a movie just released, and, and um, it's, it's outstanding. It really is. It's a true story, and it'll bless your heart. Got some tough stuff in it. Nothing inappropriate, but uh, very, very good. And it's about heaven. And I hope you imagine it every day. I wake up, I can only imagine. I can't wait. I can't wait to think, will I, will I stand in his presence? To my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can't wait for the joy of heaven, for the blessing of seeing my Savior. And this is the joy that lies before us. And this is that for which we eagerly await. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to end the sermon soon because I can't see my notes anymore because the tears are running out of my eyes. But it's amazing. And Christ is coming. This very verse is talking about the rapture, by the way. It specifically points to that where it says we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That eagerly waiting is talking about his return for us. It is talking about 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. He's coming to get us. And whether I'm dead and gone or whether I'm still here, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear the trumpet of God and the shout of the archangel. What a joy that will be. Verse 21 confirms this reference to the rapture where it says, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The first phrase there, he will transform the body, is literally, he will transform the body of our humiliation. We live in a body of humiliation, don't we? Every day. Every day we sin. Every day we fall short. Every day we need to recognize that this flesh, it's stinking nasty and dirty and full of sin. And it doesn't matter how many baths I get, it's still going to be the same way, even four showers a day. But it is a joy for us to understand that he will transform this body. This is speaking about the rapture. He'll conform us then after that into the body of his glory. There's a two-stage process where he's taking the body of our humiliation, that which we see one another in, and he conforms it, he conforms it into the body of his glory. 
One of the most beautiful, breathtaking, and impossible to understand concepts is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 58 or 60, the end of the chapter. It talks about the distinction between our mortal flesh and our immortal flesh. Because we, we often ask the question, how does this all work? Don't we? I mean, when I die, what's that going to look like? I understand Scripture tells me that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. I'm going to exhale on this earth and I'm going to inhale immediately that fast in the presence of Christ. But then the rapture comes. That's when we inherit our immortal bodies. And 1 Corinthians 15 and 35 to 40 shows us and gives us beautiful word pictures to describe that. We'll go through that one day, but, but not tonight. And all of that literally according to his operative power. It doesn't just happen, folks. If, if I'm going to be trans, transformed from a body of humiliation to a body of glory, it's going to take some serious energy. And that's the power of Christ. And he is doing that in us. He is going to impart into all of us, the dead and the living, to give us that glorious body by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, back in 1 Corinthians 15, you can't study that too much. You just can't study 1 Corinthians 15 too much. It begins with Paul's most succinct and perfect proclamation of the gospel. It goes into the return of Christ in verses 20 to 28, and then it launches into what our eternal flesh is going to look like. Man, it's, it's, that's a, that is a mammoth chapter. And that's what he references here, when all things will be subject to himself. That is the end, where death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. Beloved, this is the reward of walking. There is a tangible reward on earth for our physical walking. I got back from Haiti and Karen had started taking the dog for walks. And she asked me if I wanted to join her. And I said, sure, let's go do that. So we go out for a walk. And we take, it's not like we'd never taken walks before. You know, we live in a beautiful place. And so we decided to go take a walk. And I'm thinking it's going to be, you know, a Scott kind of walk. I mean, we're going to be holding hands and kind of lollygagging. And I'll get to stare in her eyes and, you know. No, Karen's now walking. And this girl, when she sets her mind to walking... You better have your shoes on. I should have known when she said, are you sure you don't want to put on tennis shoes? She's about a mile out, and I'm thinking I'm going to die. And the dog's stopping and going, and she is just lighting it up. And I got home, and I was like, what was that? She goes, well, that's good for us. It's good that we walk. It's good, you know, we need to do this. And I was like, you're right. It is good that we do this. And, and it helps me to understand that, you know, yeah, there's, there's plenty of this that we can yet still do and will. But there's a, there's, there's a purpose. There's a walking with purpose. There's a walking with a direction. There's a walking with a goal. There's a walking with eternity in mind. And that's the picture that he's painting for us. Because there's an infinitely greater and eternal reward to our walking with a spiritual focus. And that's where we have to be. Because that's when our lives we'll have that resolve to never stop that he told us about earlier. And when we will recognize that he has loved us with a perfect love and done all things to place us in the role, but we have to, 
We have to stay there. We have to focus. We have a job yet to do, and it's every day. And by rightly walking, seeing the error of wrong walking, and continuing to press forward, we'll know that reward that lies before us, and it'll be glorious beyond measure. Can't wait for that day. Glad we get a chance to talk about it while we're here.